Welcome to the Homebody Podcast. My name is Mary Grace, and here we explore big questions in embodied ways. These conversations intersect the mystical, the practical, and the artful, bridging a range of topics such as astrology, creative practices, what healing can look like, and cultivating deep love and care for the more-than-human world. We not only want to live better, but live more fully, with more connection, courage, and creativity in our day-to-day lives and work. And this podcast asks, what are the ways we can do that? We hope to enliven you and inspire you towards possible regenerative futures, and we hope to encourage you so together we can become dynamic agents of beauty, fully awake, fully alive to all that life has for us. We want to be here for ourselves and for one another with more grace while making room for curiosity, sensitivity, hope, and joy. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a few moments to share it with someone else. And thank you so much for listening. Welcome, everyone. A few weeks ago, we started a mini series in which we're looking at the dark houses in astrology. And these houses are the second, sixth, eighth, and twelfth. And today, Michael J. Mornis is returning to the podcast to help us tease out the sixth house, a place where we traditionally find topics such as work, slavery, servitude, illness, and even small animals. Before we jump in, if you would like more astro goodness or places to connect with other astro enthusiasts, be sure to connect in the show notes below. Check out some of the links we have there for other episodes that might interest you, including more on the dark houses, as well as contributions from our guests and more information about our astro meetup, which is free and happens every month. You'll also find the link for the forecast episode for this current month of December of 2022. Like I mentioned earlier, joining me today is Michael J. Morris, who's been on the podcast many times, as well as a threshold guest. And we have some previous appearances listed in the show notes below if you'd like to enjoy Michael's company more and your podcast feed, which I'm sure you will. Michael's an astrologer, a tarot reader, artist, writer, educator, and witch. They hold a PhD in dance studies from Ohio State University, and they're they're the founder of Co-Witchcraft Offerings. And that's a platform through which they offer astrology and tarot readings, movement-based rituals, and workshops to support people in cultivating more meaningful living while pursuing personal and collective healing and liberation. Michael is also a teaching assistant with Kelly Surtees Online Astrology Courses, a contributing writer to the Chani app, as well as a contributing artist with Livable Futures. And today on the episode, we get into some of the nuts and bolts of the sixth house. The dark houses frequently come up in sessions, meetups, discussion topics. They tend to be houses that we have to do a lot of grappling with, which is why we're doing a mini series on them. If you haven't already, go back and listen to the episode we did on the eighth house, which can give you an overview on of the houses and just how to orient to those, as well as the dark houses in particular, if you're not already familiar. Michael will share their perspectives on how the poignant questions of the sixth house are relevant to all of us really at all times, whether or not we find our prominent planets moving through there. Um, it's a house, it's a lens that offers us questions through which we can interact with our contemporary culture in a way that's more oriented towards justice and well-being. Michael brings so many powerful and poignant questions and insights and research to this conversation today. I'm so excited to share it with you, and I hope you enjoy this deep dive and into the sixth house with Michael J. Morris. Mm-hmm. 
I don't even know how to you like begin this conversation introducing you because you've been on the podcast probably more than anyone else. Um, like as a single individual, which I'm completely delighted and in love with and can like happy to continue for that to be true. Mm. Um, but I'm really excited that you're joining us today to dive into the sixth house as we're going through this series of dark houses, kind of hot topics that tend to come up a lot in sessions and in astro conversations. But before we dive into nerding out wholeheartedly on the sixth house, do you mind introducing yourself to the listeners for those who don't know you? Sure. Well, first, I'm just so happy to be back. Um, I love being in conversation with you. Um recently and across decades. Um, so it's just delightful to be back on the podcast and to be with listeners around these topics. Um, introduction, who am I? Uh, my name is Michael J. Morris. My pronouns are they, them, there. And I am an astrologer and tarot reader, a writer, an artist, um, an educator, a witch, um, currently based in Columbus, Ohio, which is the ancestral and contemporary territories of the Shawnee the Potawatomi, the Delaware, the Miami, the Peoria, the Seneca, the Wyandotte, the Ojibwe, and the Cherokee peoples. Amazing. So I feel like I want to start of zoom out. The listeners have already had kind of an introduction to like, what even is a dark house? What is a house? Like we've laid some foundation. Um, but that being said, before we start kind of zooming in on what the sixth house holds as far as topics and significations. Do you feel like there's any groundwork or hmm. framing that you'd like to lay for people? Yeah, that's helpful. Um, I think it would be useful, especially if people haven't listened to those other episodes to go back and listen to those. And also um, to just say that the houses are one of the primary structures of a chart, of a natal chart, of any sort of astrological horoscope, um, and that it's um, along with the planets, uh, the signs of the zodiac, the houses are mm, measurements of space, uh, to which, and there's 12 of them, each one of them um, well, it depends on what house system you're using, but each one of them will have some measure of degrees. Um, and the houses are one of the primary ways that we mm, attribute topics of life to uh, a chart, how we explore different areas of a person's experience, whether that's things like um, how you support yourself, how you provide for yourself, your family, your home and living situation, your relationship to pleasure and desire and sex and the erotic, your relationship to work or illness, which we might talk a little bit about today, your relationship to relationships, to partners, to committed committed significant um, arrangements with other people, um, topics like death or learning or career, et cetera, like all of those kinds of topics. Um, those are all things that we derive mostly from the houses. So um, when we think about these different segments of space, that is where we are um, getting a lot of the details of of how a chart actually functions in someone's real day-to-day -day life. It gets beyond the kind of maybe impressionistic qualities that we often see when we discuss things like the signs and really gets into um, what, how does this life function? What goes well for you? Where do you experience meaningful struggle? Things like that. And that's, uh, yeah, and that's 
how we might think about all of the houses, um, each one relating to these different kinds of topics. And then the sixth house in particular is the one that we're focusing on today. And maybe just for like spatial orientation, the sixth house is um, not part of the visible sky. It is the first house below the Western horizon. So the Western horizon um, where the sun sets is um, called the descendant in the chart. And it falls in somewhere in the seventh house. So depending on the house system, it could be the the cusp of the seventh house. So the sixth house is going to be the first full house below the horizon. And so we can think about that just in terms of spatial orientation, like where in space are we talking about when we say the sixth house? It's not um, simply an abstraction or an abstract container of concepts. There's it's directly related to this astronomy of where it is in relation to the visual field of, of the sky and the horizon. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think that's such a good reminder too, that it's, you know, that uh, the things that we're talking, especially as we get more conceptual, uh, it's sort of like, where are even these things coming from? It can be mm-hmm. a really helpful reminder that they're, they're grounded in observation, yes. um, which is, is really helpful to remember. And for me, whenever I start to kind of run away with an idea or like, oh, could this relate to this? It's like, where can we ground that in observation can be a really helpful um, container for how we, we talk and orient ourselves to this structure. So I think that's perfect. Um, And if you're looking at your chart, you feel like looking at the 12 pieces of pie, the 12 houses, if you look for the one with the six, it's going to be on the bottom right-hand corner and you'll see your sixth house. Yes, exactly. Um, so with that, are you ready to kind of jump into some of the things that we find in the sixth house? Sure. Yeah. So some of the ways we can start to talk about the sixth house as uh, maybe some of the foundations for how it is we come to some of the significations or the topics that are attributed to the sixth house is um, the sixth house is a cadent house. And we'll talk about what that means. Um, it's a cadent house that is not configured to the ascendant or sometimes said to be in aversion to the ascendant. And we'll talk about what that means. Um, and it's also um, uh, said to be the house where the planet Mars rejoices, which is a key uh, part of how we come to many of the significations associated with that house. So there's kind of three main components of it being cadent, it being um, an aversion to the ascendant, and it being the joy of Mars. That's where we're going to, going to draw most, if not all, of the significations associated with Mars or uh, associated with the sixth house. Um, and maybe I would add to the, those three. This is kind of implicit in a couple of them, um, but the seven, the sixth house is also part of the an angular triad. Um, and an angular triad is a grouping of three houses around the angles, around the angular houses. And so the sixth house is part of the angular triad on the Western horizon. So the seventh house is on the horizon. The sixth house is below the horizon and the eighth house is above the horizon. And so all three of those houses speak to something in a, in a way that's shared in kind of different facets of that. And I, I often, I guess maybe we're talking about angular triads first, and then we'll get into a <laughs> and aversion and um, those qualifications. Um, but the seventh house, that angle is about the other or others. If the first house, the ascendant is about the self, who you are, um, your sense of who you are, your maybe even your identity. The seventh house is where you meet the other, whether that's um, 
partners, relationships, business partners, um, enemies, even um, people that you're in business transactions with, um, all of the that where we meet the other is on the opposite horizon. Mm -hmm. And so I often say that the seventh house is where we're in relationship with others, where we commit to an other. Um, the eighth house is where we depend on others. So there's this relationship of dependency or interdependency that we see in the eighth house, still in relation to the other or others. And the sixth house is where we're subordinated to others. It's where we are um, under the power or under the authority of others. And so we can see this relationship of the sixth house as being part of that angular triad directly related to the topics of subordination in some way. And that comes in part from its cadency. Um, when we talk about a cadent house, we're talking about houses that have moved beyond the uh, angle. Um, they're sometimes said to be falling away from the angle. Um, and actually, Demetra George, I have lots of quotes that we might get to today. <laughs> um, Demetra George writes in her book, Ancient Astrology and Theory and Practice, Volume 2, Quote, the cadent houses represent a fall from the peak of the angular houses and a decline of the dynamic power as one is, as one is on the way down from the heights. And the downward slope is slippery as it does not provide much stability or firm footing. These houses were called acrematisticos, unprofitable or ineffective for taking care of business. Thus, planets in the cadent houses were thought to have less support or energy to bring forth their matters, end quote. And so, if we think of the angular houses as the peaks of power, or maybe where power concentrates or resides, power being like influence, the ability to make things happen, then the sixth house, as it falls away from that angle, is falling away from power, places where we might experience or um, or witness or be a part of uh, disempowerment or those who are made powerless in some way. Um, so that's could be common to all the cadent houses in different ways. So that's one of the pieces of qualifying information that we can start to bring in of what do we know about the sixth house? Well, it's falling away from an angle. So it's a place where we might experience disempowerment or falling away from power in some way, because it's part of the angular triad associated with others and the other were falling away from power, but in relation to someone else who holds on to power in some way. So that 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 idea or that theme of subordination to another is already implicit in this in this um, um, location in space relative to the angle to the angular house. And then the sixth house is also in aversion to the ascendant or not configured to the ascendant. And what we mean by that is that the sixth house does not make a, will not make a sign based um, aspect to the ascendant. And when a planet is, does not aspect the ascendant, it is, or when a house does not aspect the ascendant, a planet in a house as well. Um, mm. But when a house doesn't aspect the ascendant, it is said that it cannot contribute directly to the life force of the native, of the person to whom the chart belongs. And so houses like the sixth, the second, the eighth, and the twelfth that are in aversion to the ascendant, which we sometimes call the dark houses, because they cannot benefit from the light of the ascendant, from the light of the life that comes through the ascendant, but also can't contribute to it. And so we might think of the cadent, uh, sorry, the, the um, houses that are not configured to the ascendant as places where we engage with topics that are difficult 
to in in relation to supporting the life in in relation to advancing the life force in some way we could even say that those houses like the sixth house are places where we might have to struggle to support the life force the topics that are associated with that house might actually create difficulties or impediments to the life force in some way to your health your vitality the things that we associate with the ascendant so all those things together, the sixth house being cadent, being an aversion to the ascendant, being um, part of that angular triad, um, speaks to falling away from power, um, speaks to um, experiences that don't enhance the life force. Um, its topics are associated then with things like a lack of power or experiences that might make life more difficult. Um, we could even say that it's a place where we struggle to make life possible. Those are some topics that we can start to associate with the sixth house. Um, does that make sense so far? Yeah, it definitely does. And I see a lot, like, I think too, the Caden houses, like a lot of times an experience of them can just like, if I only didn't have to deal with all of this, yeah, then I could get on with what I feel like my life is supposed to be about. Yeah. Um, like that can sometimes carry a sense of that. And I have this thinking too, with just like, you know, with houses that are in aversion, having these topics of like, it's all this invisible work, right? It's mm-hmm. not like our life gets better necessarily when we do them. Um, it's like no one, no one at work really cares if you like what you're eating for lunch, <laughs> breakfast, or dinner. But these are it's all this invisible stuff we have to do to keep going, and that ongoingness, mm-hmm. sort of the relentless ongoingness of what it can feel like the cadent houses are. It sort of keeps us wrapped up in things. They're like, oh, if I could just finally get through my to do list and I can get to the thing that my life is really about, mm-hmm. um, can be kind of a way that. I see that manifest in myself, but also with others, there's like a, um, a grind to it. Yeah. A bit. Oh, I think grind or grind culture <laughs> is definitely <laughs> a key word of the sixth house or could For be. Sure. Um, and I love, yeah, that thinking about the things that happen here, um, either maybe distract from getting on with the business of our lives or get in the way of getting on with the business of our lives or um, create impediments to that kind of movement or trajectory. It's like the things that we have to do. We don't have a choice then. We have to do these things in some just way. Just carry on. <laughs> just to carry on, just to fucking Not survive. Not to advance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For and, sure. And then the other thing that we can add to this cluster of significations, and then we might, I might actually list some actual significations associated with the sixth house now that we've started to build this conceptual framework, um, is that it's the house where Mars rejoices. Yeah. And Mars is one of the traditional malefic planets, malefics being planets that um, are associated with some of the more difficult experiences in life. Doesn't mean those experiences aren't valuable or can't benefit us in some way, which we might talk about ways in which that shows up in people's charts. Um, but doesn't mean that, that they're easy. They're more challenging topics. They they are um, yeah places where we might experience problematic um, influences in our lives. And so with Mars in particular, Mars has long been associated with things like frustration, agitation, anger, conflict. Um, often when we go back to the ancient texts, we see things about accidents and injuries and illness um, and war, um, but also violence, that violence is one of the most consistent significations uh, attributed to Mars, especially in the ancient astrology. And so we might think of like, okay, so the f- the quality of Mars is frustrating and agitating and 
potentially injurious, um, potentially violent, difficult things happening to the body. Um, Those kinds of things start to then inform how we might think of the this particular cadent house that's not configured to the ascendant, um, that's part of this angular triad on the Western horizon of like, okay, so we're frustrated, we're in conflict with other people to whom we're subordinated in some way, people who have more power than we do, and we're maybe in struggle with them or um, in conflict with them or having to like push or fight in order to get what we need out of that situation. And so then... When we think about the traditional significations associated with Mars, and these come mostly from Demetra's ancient astrology book um, that she's aggregated from a lot of the ancient sources and kind of summarized where there's repetition and redundancies between texts to sort of get a um, a kind of aggregate of the, these are the topics or the kinds of topics that were most commonly associated with the sixth house in ancient astrology. Um, and these include things like misfortunes, troubles, bad luck illness and disease, accidents and injury, servitude, slavery, which we'll talk more about because slavery is one of the most persistent associations with the sixth house in ancient astrology. Um, Later, jobs. So, we see this progression from like slavery in ancient astrology and then maybe somewhere around the uh, Middle Ages into the Enlightenment period. It's like, it's like serfdom. A job. job. And it's like, <laughs> and so we might think about the relationship between that. I'm like, where did this job come from? But um, then also topics of bondage and oppression, military and armed services, enemies, insurrections. And then small animals, but specifically as workers in the ancient texts. In modern astrology, this often gets translated to pets, and maybe we can see pets in the sixth house. But when we, but when we look to the ancient texts, they're specifically writing about animals that are made to do labor for us. Like mm-hmm. I'm thinking, like sheepdogs and small horses that are, or um, donkeys that are mm-hmm. pulling plows, things like that, um, that are doing some sort of work for us in some way. Um, Yeah, those are some of the things that are associated with the sixth house. And I hope that as people are listening, it makes sense how each and every one of those things on the list, how we got there from these conceptual foundations of where the sixth house is, its relationship to the ascendant, its relationship to the angle, and its association with Mars. It's like, yeah, nothing on this list is surprising (laughs) because those are the topics. Those are the places, those topics are maybe the meeting place or the intersections of those three or four different primary influences in terms of determining what is it that we associate with this part of the sky or this part of the chart. When talking about the sixth house with clients, um, which like is a different thing, maybe when you're sitting down with a client, you don't lead off with um, mm-hmm. bondage, oppression, slavery, <laughs> enemies, insurrections. Maybe we don't start there. <laughs> we build into that in ways that we can. Um, I often lead off when talking about the sixth house by saying that it's the place associated with work and labor, health and illness. It's the place where we grapple with the relationship between our wellness and our work, the ways in which so often within the systems that we are living within, our wellness is sacrificed to our work Mm -hmm. um, or our health is made a um, resource that can be extracted through our labor for systems and institutions that we didn't choose or design, but to which we are subjected in some way. And even just starting with that, I you know, I haven't had a single client in my entire years of doing this work who doesn't have, I mean, if especially if they have a planet in the sixth house, but even if they don't, they have a ruler of the sixth house mm-hmm. somewhere in their chart. I haven't met anyone yet who does not have 
some experience with the relationship between specific, not just the relationship between well-being and work, but specifically the struggle to Mm -hmm. try to maintain health and well-being under the conditions of work and labor. Mm -hmm. And that's often a good starting place to get people thinking about how the sixth house functions in their chart, but also how their specific individual life intersects with these much larger systems to which we are subordinated. So that's other language that I shift to fairly quickly is thinking about the sixth house in relation to those power dynamics of subordination and marginalization and oppression, um, specifically subordination, marginalization, and oppression uh, due to experiences of race and class, um, ability and disability, gender and sexuality, all of the ways in which we can see larger social systems um, operating on and through our lives in ways that um, uh, disempower us, make power less available, or or make our access to power one that is bound to struggle. Maybe that's another way of thinking about it. It's not that there's no power in the sixth house. It's that we have to struggle for power in the mm-hmm. sixth house. And we could think about the ways in which power itself is implicit in struggle. Maybe that's a much longer conversation. Um, <laughs> but yeah, those are the kinds of topics that I start to talk about with people. Um, and that can show up in a lot of different ways that can show up with people having literal experiences of disability or, um, or health crises or health difficulties or struggles with, um, their work and labor. It can show up in terms of people belonging to or working with or within communities that have been systemically marginalized due to race or class or age or ability and so on. Um, so there's lots of directions that can move in, but just from those starting places, we begin to find the threads of how a person lives some part of their life through the sixth house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was thinking a lot of just like where we have to work for mm-hmm. power. Like this is idea, you know, the idea of like meritocracy, especially mm-hmm. in the United States, like, well, if you just work hard enough, then you'll move the bubble or you'll move the needle, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and also just thinking about the contrast between, you know, people who inherit wealth, which mm-hmm. would be more of like kind of that eighth housey situation. And then the people who have to like, you know, like we think of more like blue collar workers or like essential workers or wage workers or manual laborers, like people literally like blood, sweat and tears on the table mm-hmm. to get an hourly rate to put dinner on the table. Like, you know, the contrast between those things yeah, um, feels really, really evident as you're talking there. I think so too. And I think even in those folks who benefit from generational wealth and inheritance from family money and things like that, they're, they are still factored into the sixth house in some way. Like they're, they play a role in mm-hmm. those systems in some way. Um, because I mean, maybe that's part of the, the, um, one of the ways in which systems like, um, imperialism, colonization, um, capitalism, white supremacy, how they function is like they're actually, there is no one who's not subject to the machinations of this system in some way. So it's like even those who unarguably hold immense power and privilege are still subject to someone else, to something else. And so even in those lives, we could still explore the sixth health. Although I love the the um um comparison or contrast that you're pointing to between these 
to different dark houses between the sixth house and the eighth house, um, those who may benefit from these systems and maybe those who are more subject or subordinated to these systems, maybe being ways in terms of emphasis in those two houses. Yeah. Um, so maybe from that list or from some of those topics, the two that I think about the most when I'm thinking about the sixth house, after I've kind of like given some introductory ideas with a client of like, here's some things we can think about in this area. Um, the threads that I follow, uh, maybe the most in conceptually or in terms of my own theoretical development from these ancient sources is specifically around the terms of slavery and illness. Mm-hmm. Um, those two being um, unarguably forces that continue to shape our lives, our world, the world in which we're living our lives. Um, And I often think about them in relation to um, lots of folks who are doing important theoretical work, philosophical work, critical thinking, in things like critical race theory, in terms of Black feminism, in terms of African and African-American histories, um, but also people doing work in the movements of disability justice. How do we think differently about bodies and illness and injury and disease and disability from a disability justice lens. So those are maybe some directions we can move in. But I will say that I find that um, many, I'll just say many, I haven't done a study on this, but I find that many contemporary astrologers mm, avoid these topics Um, Maybe because they don't know how to talk about them. Maybe they don't know how to connect the dots between slavery and living in 2022. Um, Like maybe that's, maybe that's too much of a leap or a stretch for people. Um, But I do think, I mean, besides the fact that um, absolutely we're still living in a world that um, in which slavery happens, but also a world that has been deeply structured by the existence of slavery for hundreds, if not thousands of years, like that means slavery is still a relevant topic in terms of how our lives function and how we're living our lives. Maybe even thinking about the um, the afterlife of slavery as a framework for how we might understand the persistence of those themes, those topics into our contemporary lives. And I think it's, mm, we do a disservice to our astrology, I think, when we uh, don't allow it to be capacious enough to hold these kinds of realities, to hold these kinds of experiences. That if we, if, for example, um, you're a practicing astrologer or just someone who like does astrology as a hobby or just something that for yourself that supports and sustains your life, if we don't ask questions like, in what ways has my life been impacted by, shaped by, or intersecting with the ongoing history of slavery in I mean, specifically for us here in the United States, but also in terms of global economies. There is an answer to that question for every single one of us. How does my life intersect with these forces? If we don't ask those questions, then we're not only missing out on part of what astrology can, in fact, describe, Mm -hmm. but we're missing out on um, the ways that astrology can usefully point our attention back to some of the areas of life that maybe we're conditioned to not want to give our attention to. And so, what I hope comes out of um, this episode and this conversation is just giving people some more tools or resources for 
contemplating these topics associated with the sixth house that they can then bring back into their own um, exploration of their own natal chart um, or their work with clients if they're practicing astrologers. Or if you're listening to this and you're like, these are interesting topics. I don't know much about astrology. Guess what? You can still ask the question, in what way does my life intersect with the afterlife of slavery? In what ways has my life been shaped by hundreds, if not thousands of years of the enslavement of other people? We can still ask that question with or without the a chart in front of us. And also, part of what we're doing in this conversation is pointing to the ways that astrology as a discipline, as a practice, um, actually does hold the potential to ask these questions and to have these kinds of conversations. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One of the ways that I like to talk about it, it's like, you know, astrology wouldn't be honest yes. as a language if it wasn't capable of talking about these things, especially a lot of the things that we talk about in the dark houses in particular would not be an honest language, mm-hmm. um, I think. I agree entirely. And I think that... Um, Maybe that what that makes me think of is like in order to trust the astrology, we have to be practicing honest astrology. Mm. If we're like, how can the astrology be trustworthy if we're making the choice to make it not trustworthy? If we're making the choice to make it not honest, I don't know. That's a thought just for people to chew on or sit with. Um, this phrase that I've mentioned a couple of times, the afterlife of slavery, um, was coined by um, a brilliant scholar named Saidiya Hartman. Um, and specifically, I think she first used the phrase in her book, Lose Your Mother, A Journey Along the Atlantic Slave Route. Um, but she's done a lot of critical thinking around this idea of the afterlife of slavery. And she writes in that book, quote, Slavery had established a measure of man and a ranking of life and worth that has yet to be undone. If slavery persists as an issue in the political life of Black America, it is not because of an antiquarian obsession with bygone days or the burden of a too long memory, but because Black lives are still imperiled and devalued by a racial calculus and a political arithmetic that were entrenched centuries ago. This is the afterlife of slavery, skewed life chances, limited access to health and education, premature death, incarceration, and impoverishment. And so this afterlife of slavery, this idea is the enduring presence of slavery's racialized violence that is still present in contemporary society. So we might think about even in the aftermath of the Emancipation Proclamation in the U.S. in 1863, and even, as we'll talk about more, the ratification of the 13th Amendment in 1865, which ostensibly, although not thoroughly, abolished slavery as a practice in the United States. The afterlife of slavery describes all the ways that the what we might think of as the established order of chattel slavery continued and continues to impact the lives of Black people in the U.S. through the period of Jim Crow laws, through the transformation of slave codes into laws that targeted Black folks, um, through the ongoing forces of violence, incarceration, voting restrictions, redlining, medical neglect, etc. All of these things that can be traced right back to the dehumanization and the subjugation of African and African-American people as enslaved in the United States 
we can see how those traces are are not uh, simply conceptual. They're literal. They literally impact the lives of living people, living communities in our present moment here in 2022. And even if you are not someone who belongs to those communities, even if you are not a Black person living in the United States, your life is still impacted by those same systems. You are living in a world that is, let's, for example, uh, point to a world that is structured, a society that is structured by policing and surveillance. Well, where did policing come from? Well, in the United States, the earliest police forces were slave patrols who were tasked with catching and returning escaped um, fugitive slaves back to the plantations that quote unquote owned them. So even if you're not a Black American living in this country, your life is still directly impacted by the forces that were established during that um, institution in this country that spanned hundreds of years. So we can think about the ways any and all of us, the, the police is just one example. We could look at all the ways. We could look at, God, I mean, we're post the, the midterm elections. Um, we could look at the way gerrymandering happens in a state, for example, like a state like Ohio, perhaps, just theoretically. And the ways that all of our lives are impacted by this structural racism that um, fomented in the period of, of the, the, the middle, the, um, Middle Passage and the transatlantic slave trade. Obviously, I mean, for anyone, the critical thinkers in the audience, obviously, this astrological tradition is over 2,000 years old. And so the attribution of the sixth house to slavery predates the Middle Passage and the transatlantic slave trade. It reaches back to older forms of slavery um, that were handled differently, but then the, the, the slavery that we're maybe more familiar with in the U.S. in terms of our more recent history. And yet, those systems of ancient forms of slavery um, were still about the uh, the owning the property, the sub and the subordination of other people, often through processes of war. So one country or nation state would conquer another, and often the prisoners of war would then become slaves to the to the um, prevailing country. So something like that. So we could still see how that logic holds. Um, even when we go back to the ancient roots, but in our contemporary society, um, I think this afterlife of slavery is a useful way of thinking about how all of us are, um, and by all of us, I actually mean even beyond the US, um, even beyond Europe, um, all of us are impacted in some way by these more recent forms of slavery that we see within the last like 500 years. And it makes me think of this quote from Denise Ferreira, Ferreira da Silva um, in an essay she wrote called Toward a Black Feminist po Poetics. And she writes that it's very short. She just said that the total value produced by slave labor continues to sustain global capital. And so we can think through this period of hundreds of years of the generation of so-called surplus value, i.e. Um, people being able to make extreme profits because the people who were doing the labor were enslaved and were not compensated for that labor. So the extraction of literally people's labor, but their energy, their lives, their families, all of the resources for hundreds of years that um, were extracted from enslaved people that now continues to circulate in a global economy as the surplus value that then became the seeds of 
um, all kinds of generational wealth that is not only located or isolated within the US. I'm just using economics, which is not my primary field, but I'm just leaning a little bit into uh, Denise Ferreira da Silva's work here to point to how even if you're someone living, listening to this who lives outside of the US, you have your life, your world has still been deeply impacted by the slavery that happened in the US, that happened in um, Europe, that happened in the United Kingdom, um, that happened in Brazil and other parts of South America. Like you're still, all of us are impacted by these forces in some ways. And maybe the last quote I'll reference here in terms of slavery, um, I'm in this course right now. I don't, uh, oh, this is yeah, this is probably coming out in December, so I'm probably still going to be in that course when this comes out. <laughs> I'm in this course right now with Bio Akamalafe um, um, called We Will Dance with Mountains Into the Cracks. And at one point in one of the lectures, Akamalafe was discussing the Middle Passage and the reality of the Middle Passage in excess of the facts and histories that are often written from the perspective of the slavers. And he often offered this provocation that the slave ship never disappeared. The slave ships never disappeared. Instead, they were eaten up by the shore, and the shore became the slave ship. And so in this sense, we have never left the slave ships. We are actually indebted to the slave ships and their architecture and their power dynamics for the stabilities that we enjoy in our contemporary world, how we speak about the world, all the privileges and luxuries that are afforded to some and all of the suffering and oppression that are distributed to others. We are still living within hierarchies of power, of influence, of privilege and oppression that were carried on slave ships that then became the shores and the land, the nation on which we live our lives. And so this thinking invites us to ask questions like, how are we living in worlds organized by slavery, built from slave ships, built as slave ships, and to ask what would be lost or what must be abandoned if we were to acknowledge and to refuse that those deep social architectures that we inha we inherit from those periods of our history. I think that's thinking that we can do in relation to the sixth house. Um, in what ways are we living in and through systems and institutions that are relics of these institutions, the institution of the slave ship? What does it mean to try to work and be well in a country like the U.S. that was built on hundreds of years of sacrificing the health and well-being of people to enslaved labor in order to generate so-called surplus value. How are global systems of labor still operating within cultures and value systems that were developed and established through the institution of slavery? All of us can ask those questions. All of us will have answers to those questions. And astrologically, very likely, those answers to those questions will be reflected in some way through how the sixth house is configured in our charts. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would like to be give applause on the podcast or <laughs> um yeah, and thinking of those some of the ways that 
if we can recognize it and really, you know, the people who are stocking shelves at the grocery store, people who Mm -hmm. are bagging, you know, these ways that there's, there feels like there's no out, you know, it's like Home Depot where it's like, oh, I've been working here for 50 years. And some people, they like it and they want to, and some people like they have no choice. Like the way that we see this lack of opportunity it's like someone has to be on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Someone has to be making minimum wage. Somebody has to be living paycheck to paycheck in order for this to work. And so like finding these kind of recognizable base of people that either we are, that we interact with, and we can also see it as a force in a way that we feel like, well, I can't take a break because I have to pay my rent. Right. Like that that force that we feel inside of us where we're just like, no, that obligation towards work or feeling sub- that we even if we work for ourselves or if we work for others or whatever the situation is, that sense of feeling like I can't stop that grind mm-hmm. um, that we're sort of obliged or enslaved to it in some way um, where it's, it's become, it's also like a force, a system, yeah. a thing that we can all. And so I think asking that question is really, is really great. And like prompting us to look at like all the different places that we relate to it historically. And also in, in our day-to-day lives in a very tangible, recognizable way. Totally. I mean, I think even you said like the people stocking shelves at the grocery store, working at Home Depot for 50 years, and maybe they like it. And my first, I was like, even when we like it, we have to do it. Like yeah. that, like, even when we find work that we can enjoy, we are still subject to that force of, I have to pay my bills. I have to survive. We live in a world that we designed or that was designed for us where in order to to survive, we must work. I mean, in our more like um, visionary moments, we could ask whether it has to be that way. <laughs> but like, um, and then the sixth house will probably mean something radically different in the context of a world in which we don't have to work in order to survive. But I think even, even when we find work that we enjoy, we might still attenuate ourselves to that reality of that feeling that you were pointing to of, I don't have a choice even if I've found work that is satisfying in some way, which might be the ways we bring the sixth house into balance where we are the work that we're doing that we have to do that we have no choice in can at least also support our well-being rather than compromise our well-being. Like hopefully that's work we can do in the sixth house. But even in that situation, we can pay attention to that force, that power exerted on us that we have to do this. We don't have a choice in that regard. Um, the other thing that I wanted to just acknowledge that I think is clear in everything that I was saying already, um, but just to say that while all of us can ask these questions and all of us will have answers to these questions, that does not mean we all have the same experiences of these systems. And obviously, both historically and in a, the, our contemporary moment, those who live at the axes of multiple forms of oppression, whether that's due to race or class or age or disability or um, gender or sexuality, the, those lives who live at the intersections of those forces are going to experience disproportionate distribution of these kinds of struggles that we might associate with the sixth house. That said, even folks who um, have live at those intersections um, of multiple forms of oppression, it does not mean that they don't also have opportunities or possibilities for doing um, radical, revolutionary, uh, liberatory work 
in relation to the sixth house. Like there's lots of ways we could see that in someone's chart as well, that it's probably beyond the scope of what we can get to in this conversation. But just to acknowledge that the the topography of how we answer those questions is never going to be equal or even. Um, and that there are those of us who are going to move through those topics with, with much more systemic and institutional uh, privilege and others who are going to move through that with much more exposure to the forces of subordination, marginalization, oppression, exploitation, extraction, and so on. Yeah. And in that sort of disproportionate distribution, maybe we can shift to the other main topic that I think of in relation to the sixth house, um, which is the topic of broadly disability, um, but the body, the body in its variability, um, the body as it moves with things that we call illness or injury or um, um, what's that word? Infirmity. Um, mm -hmm. That that these we have language for for ways of marking bodies as mm, deviant from some sort of ideal in some way. Um, and that's one way we could think about disability broadly as a term is thinking about the ways in which different bodies are either supported or not supported in their differences by the world that we've built. And the politicization of the support and survival of some bodies and not other bodies. And so as we kind of move in this direction, just to say that my thinking around disability is entire, almost entirely um, indebted to and, and informed by um, what's called the disability justice movement. And I'll talk a little bit about where that movement came from, maybe. And then also something we probably won't talk much much about today, but also the healing justice movement, which has a lot of overlap with the disability justice movement. Um, not identical histories, but many people who are um, activists or organizers or um, thinkers in both of these movements simultaneously. And maybe I want to share this quote from Aurora Levins Morales um, from her book, Kindling, um, which I think is one way we can orient toward the topics of disability and disability justice. And she writes, quote, there is no neutral body from which our bodies deviate. Society has written deep into each strand of tissue of every living person on earth. What it writes into the heart muscles of five-star generals is distinct from what it writes in the pancreatic tissue and intestinal tracts of Black single mothers in Detroit, of Mexicana migrants in Fresno. But no body stands outside the consequences of injustice and inequality. What our bodies require in order to thrive is what the world requires. If there is a map to get there, it can be found in the atlas of our skin and bone and blood, in the tracks of neurotransmitters and antibodies, end quote. And so because of this long-time association of the sixth house with illness and infirmity and disease, I think it is a place where we struggle uh, with or against the idea of an ideal or neutral body from which other bodies deviate or are different, rather than recognizing that difference is inherent in all bodies. And yet, there, even though there is no such ideal body, no such neutral body, we live in systems that are engineered to treat all bodies as if they are the same, primarily 
the same machines from which we can extract labor, productivity, and profit, that that is the so-called neutral ideal body. And the more productive a body is within those systems, the more we associate that body with health and wellness. And the less able a body is to participate in the generation of productivity and profit within these massive systems to which we are subjected, the more that body is described as ill or sick or infirm or disabled or impaired in some way. We start to mark those bodies as different from this fabricated, unachievable ideal of productive health. That, I think, is crucial to understanding the sixth house. The sixth house is where we struggle with that organization of bodies in our world. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm thinking of several charts right now floating through my head of like friends and people I know and just like, yeah, absolutely. Um, And where also how that correlates to where often people are demonized Mm -hmm. for their regimens or their lack of care or like, oh, you must not be taking care of yourself well. Right. You know, there's this kind of like morality that goes with those deviations as well. um, That's related to like, well, if you just took better care of yourself. Yeah. Um, And I'm thinking of that dynamic as well. Absolutely. Yeah. The ways in which people are blamed or punished for their deviation from an impossible idealized norm that doesn't exist and how um, the sixth house holds those possibilities and those potentials that are real, that people experience those in their real lives. Um, We've probably experienced those in our real lives in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, Another, in addition to Levin's Morales, another um, leading voice in the disability justice movement is um, someone named Patty Byrne, who has written an extraordinary account of the emergence of disability justice, which can you can find online at sinsinvalid.org, um, sinsinvalid or sinsinvalid. Um, and um, explicitly, disability justice emerged in part due to the ways that the more mainstream uh, legislation-driven disability rights movement often erased or invisibilized the lives of people who lived at the intersections of multiple systems of oppression. Um, disabled people of color, for example, who were often never present for these conversations or representations of what it meant to be disabled. Um uh, people, uh, immigrants with disabilities, um, queer folks and trans folks and gender nonconforming folks with disabilities, people who were, who fell too far outside of the, the normalized neutral ideal body. It's like we can talk about disability as long as you check all these other boxes of what it means to be the right kind of body. And that folks who live at these intersections of multiple forms of systemic oppression often fell fell too far outside of that um, idealized norm. And so often weren't included or were invisibilized in some way as part of those more mainstream um, disability rights movements. Um, And Byrne writes, quote, Disability justice activists, organizers, cultural and cultural workers understand that able-bodied supremacy has been formed in relation to intersecting systems of domination and exploitation. The histories of white supremacy and ableism are inextricably entwined, both 
forged in the crucible of colonial conquest and capitalist domination. We cannot comprehend ableism, which would be like the prioritization of a certain kind of body, um, the assumption that all bodies are that kind of body, that ableism. We cannot comprehend ableism without grasping its interrelations with heteropatriarchy, white supremacy, colonialism, and capitalism, each system co-creating an ideal body-mind built upon the exclusion and, em- and elimination of a subjugated other from whom profits and status are extracted. 500 plus years of violence against black and brown communities in, uh, uh, b- 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 includes 500 plus years of bodies and minds deemed dangerous by being non-normative. Again, not simply within able-bodied normativity, but within the violence of heteronormativity, white supremacy, gender normativity, within which our various bodies and multiple communities have been deemed deviant, unproductive, and invalid, end quote. And so this intersectional analysis of ableism, understanding the ways that ableism is already inextricably intertwined with colonization and capitalism and heteropatriarchy and white supremacy and anti-Blackness and slavery and 500 years of violence against Black and brown people communities and others who are deemed non-normative, All of this is a really incisive demonstration of how the topics of, for example, slavery and illness coincide in the sixth house, because those forces within our histories, but also within our present world, were never separate to begin with, that they reinforced one another in the production of this imaginary normative ideal of what it means to be the right kind of body. That together, whether it's about whiteness or a partic- particular form of mobility or productivity or um, uh, neurology ways of thinking, that those same systems and forces that um, dehumanized and subordinated people based on race were also operating at the level of these other forms of att- attributes of bodies. And so... While I might consider racialized subjugation and illness or disability as key significations of the sixth house or what we might explore when we're talking about the sixth house, I'm looking also at the ways that this life struggles in the context of all these intersecting systems. The life that's represented by the chart, how is, in what ways, it's not even if, it's in what ways does this life intersect with or engage with or struggle with all of these interlocking systems of oppression. So that's something that we can draw from this um, intersectional analysis that comes out of the disability justice movement. What bodies are made more normalized um, and why? And what bodies, how are our bodies, all of our bodies eventually? I mean, I can't actually remember there was a guest speaker at the university I was teaching at several years ago, um, and I can't remember the speaker's name off the top of my head, um, but who made the point that all of us will be disabled at some point in our lives, most likely, whether that's because you have an injury and you break your leg and you're on crutches for a while, so it's a temporary maybe disability, or like you get old enough, your body is going to start to function differently, and those differences that come with age are often what we would designate as disabilities, where the world no longer meets your body as it is, meets the needs of your body as it is. And so in some way, 
we are all going to have to grapple with these questions of how a world is designed to support or to not support bodies that are deemed normal or normative or idealized in some way. Um, and all the rest of us, all of us, who at some point are not that body. That's some of the work of the six houses grappling with that reality of the ways in which none of us are or are permanently capable of fitting within those idealized norms of what it means to be a body. Yeah, I was thinking earlier when we were talking about, we talk about Mars rejoicing in the sixth house and also mm. thinking of a, a quality of Mars as competitive mm -hmm. competition and just this way that there's that that measuring potentially by physical prowess or the ability to run faster, to get ahead or the ability to lift a heavier thing so that mm. you can go farther that. Um, and so therefore your lack of association potentially with those martial qualities could also be associated with your lack of ability to experience power or agency or mm. acceptance, et cetera. Yeah. 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 The, the inherent competitiveness that we're, pitted against not only one another, pitted against ourselves. Like, God, I mean, I guess this is a pop culture reference. <laughs> I was watching the, <laughs> the recent Star Wars uh, show Andor on Disney+. Plus, um, and at one point, a character ends up in this um, penitentiary system, penal factory, um, where they're um, like high standards of productivity to turn out these mechanical things that they're building day after day after day. And they never said this explicitly, but I felt like part of what they were showing through how life in this um, carceral system, carceral factory function was that at a certain point, these incarcerated prisoners were really striving to like, to be the group that made the most progress that was most productive it's like they were they were getting conditioned into the false reward system of good job you made the most and as i was watching it it was like oh god <laughs> <laughs> like elementary school <laughs> well exactly all the ways that we are um put in that competitive mode and it's like wait wait this competition that we're in with ourselves and with one another is a fucking distraction from the fact that we're prisoners in this in this uh um uh factory producing instruments of war like and how much that that how deeply the conditioning can happen i mean this was a scene in a in a in a television show but exactly the connection that you're making to like in what ways were we and when and how early were we conditioned to into a false system of reward to be uh, in that grind of the endless work um, to the to the point where sometimes probably we think it's worth it because yeah. of some kind of benefit that we have come to expect from functioning in the ways that the systems demand something like that. Yeah. Like the dangling carrot, like, yeah. you know, and I have those and those for me very much were correlated to kind of, um, you know, ways I took care of my body or did not take care of my body in response to what I was told I needed to do in order to achieve my dream, which is to be a professional dancer full time yeah. or thinking about like my, ex which of course fed a perfectionism, especially around academic work and like what yeah. I have to do to like 
get an A plus while also working a part-time job while also dancing 25 hours a week. Well, also like, you know, just think like, that's what you're going to do. And if you do it, get your straight A's, then you'll get into college. And if you get into a good college and then you're going to get this kind of job, like there's this kind of self-perpetuated like dangling carrot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we can just realize like, oh, actually we're not in a race and there is no carrot. And okay. what matters is my experience of the day. Like we're here to be alive. We're not necessarily here to work. Ugh. Say it again, <laughs> you know, and I think, you know, there are ways that the way I experience working in my garden is a work that I, that brings me life. And that's a whole other conversations. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, we're here to live. You yeah. Know? We're here to live. Yeah. Speaking of lives, same way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, speaking of lives, <laughs> um, there's a couple of chart examples that we might um, look at or just talk through um, in terms of ways that we can see the sixth house showing up in um, specific people's um, charts. And so maybe I'll share my screen for um, for the people who are watching the video version. And if you're not watching the video version, I'll describe everything you need to know about the charts that we're looking at. Um, so yeah, so the first chart um, that I pulled up for our conversation is Ava DuVernay, um, who's an American filmmaker, director, producer, um, television producer, who came into pretty considerable visibility um, with her one of her films, Selma, which came out in 2014, which was a biopic about Martin Luther King Jr. And then even more so with her groundbreaking documentary, 13th, which came out in 2016, which addresses the intersection of race, justice, the history of slavery, and mass incarceration in the United States. And so DuVernay has um, Capricorn on the Ascendant, which makes Saturn the planet that rules her Ascendant. And she has Saturn in Gemini in the sixth house. Um, And there's a couple of, and so part of what that might mean is that if we think of in ancient astrology, the ascendant is often described as the helm of life. It's like the steering mechanism that guides and directs our life um, as well as the kinds of things that motivate or propel our, our lives. And then the planet that rules the ascendant is said to be the steer's person. It's the planet that's guiding and directing the life towards the kinds of experiences or activities that are going to be most mm, purposeful or meaningful, maybe even satisfying in some way. And with the ruler of her ascendant in the sixth house, we can see how her life in her chart is being steered toward these sixth house topics. And if we look specifically at the example of the film 13th, which is streaming on Netflix, it might be streaming on other services services as well, but you can watch it. Um, if you live in the United States, I almost consider it required viewing. If you don't know the history of the 13th amendment and how it's related to mass incarceration. Um, but Without going into the entire film here in this conversation, I will say that the film opens with a, an analysis of the 13th Amendment, which reads, neither slave, this is in our constitution for those of you who live in the US and don't know this, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall be duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. So if you thought that the 13th Amendment said that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist in the United States, that is in fact not what it says. It says that is the case except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall be duly convicted. And so 
it is enshrined within our constitution that the so-called the amendment that's that um was said to abolish slavery in fact did not abolish slavery but made slavery uh legal within our country under the conditions of someone committing a crime and if you know anything about crime or the so-called criminal punishment system crimes are actions that some people determine to be criminal. Um, there, that that crime, as we can look back in the long history of the world, not even just the United States, oftentimes there things have been criminal that that have been crimes that we would now say, but that's not a crime. Things like, for example, homosexuality in the United States, which was still criminalized until 2003 in the United States. Um, things like women having the right to vote, Black women having the right to vote, um, slaves escaping their plantations. These were all crimes. And so crime is in fact not synonymous with harm, or having done harm, or having done violence in some way, crime simply means you've done something that other people determined that you should not do. And in the interests of the abolition, uh, following the abolition of slavery, in the interests of keeping an entire community and population subordinated to those in power, it would uh, be advantageous to criminalize behaviors for those specific communities in order to further sustain that subordination, that uh, that organization of power. The, this documentary, 13th, by Ava DuVernay, um, goes on to spend more than an hour and a half tracing the path from this clause in the 13th Amendment to the 2.2 million prisoners in the American justice system. Um, at the very beginning of the film, it opens with the staggering statistic that 25% of the people in the world who are incarcerated are in the United States. That's a quarter of the world's incarcerated populations are in the U.S. It's not an accident that the majority of the people in those systems are people of color. That's part of what this film is arguing as a documentary. And so it seems really fitting that a filmmaker with Saturn ruling the ascendant, Saturn, which, by the way, has also long been associated with the topics of incarceration and imprisonment. If we go back to any of the ancient sources, it talks about people being chained, people being bound, people being imprisoned. So Saturn already carries some of those significations. Then having Saturn in the sixth house, which has long been associated with slavery, it might it makes sense that Duvernay would have would find purposeful or find meaning in exploring the connection between the prison industrial complex and the transatlantic slave trade, the legacy of slavery, or what Hartman describes as the afterlife of slavery embodied in the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration in the United States. I mean, we could also look for those similar themes in her earlier film, Selma, about Martin Luther King Jr. and the way that so, largely themes of social justice or struggles against oppressive systems have inspired and fueled her life and her career up until this point. Yeah, it's like a reminder of something we mentioned earlier, talking about sometimes there can be, especially when we have really personal placements in these houses, there can be that feeling or that sense, that experience, if I can just get out of this grind, if I can just mm -hmm. get out of this mess, this thing that's like distracting me from what my life is actually about, this 
example, this reminder that sometimes the meaning is in that mess somewhere. Like maybe Mm. you're here to be in that mess and like there's purpose in that as well, that it's, um, which can be a helpful and I find sometimes a comforting reminder that perhaps while we are experiencing this as an obstacle, it's not, it may not, there may be something in it that we can find meaning or make a story from, or even a sense of purpose from as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I say that to students all the time who, when they're starting to be introduced to ideas like malefic planets or more challenging planets or just challenging configurations in a chart, like when a planet is in detriment or in its fall or in one of these dark houses. And I think sometimes, and probably it has a lot to do with the cultures that we live in in our contemporary society, there can be a um, wanting to avoid those topics or how do I how do I get around those? Or how do I, mm-hmm. how do I sure. move towards what's easy in my chart? And I don't want to, I'm not discouraging ease. I want us all to live and live lives with more ease in them. And also what I often invite students to consider is that if any of us look back over our lives, some of the most meaningful experiences, maybe were also some of the most challenging, mm-hmm. some of the struggles that we overcame or even that we're still in. Um, It makes me think of Angela Davis teaching us that freedom is a constant struggle. It's like, sometimes I think we have this idea, especially in the US, that freedom means like, I can do whatever I want. It's like, "Ah, that sounds more like privilege than freedom. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) I'm perfectly aligned with existing systems of power such that everything that I want to do is fully supported by the existing system. That may may not be freedom. Freedom might be the struggle with those systems to open up the possibilities of what we can do. Yeah. That's intensely meaningful. That's intensely purposeful and, and does not mean it's easy. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. So I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to um, idealize struggle, like um, that we should, we should all be living lives of nothing but struggle. That's not the point. We will have struggles in our lives is the point. And those struggles can be purposeful and meaningful. Um, like in this example, like in um, Ava DuVernay creating really um, profoundly influential films about very difficult topics, probably films that weren't that easy to make, frankly. Um, if you've ever done work, any sort of creative work that focuses on difficult topics, it's not easy to do that work. And the topics are difficult and the work you're doing with them are also difficult. And yet, because it's the ruler of her ascendant there in the sixth house, also potentially part of what it is that she's here to do, part of her life's purpose is in attending to these topics and experiences that we see um, signified both by Saturn and by the sixth house in her chart. Mm-hmm. The other chart that I wanted to share, which I will share my screen again, is the chart of Frida Kahlo. Um, And Frida Kahlo was a Mexican painter, um, most well-known for her self-portraits, her other portraits, and paintings that incorporated references to Mexican culture, artifacts, the natural landscape of Mexico, um, while addressing themes like identity, um, colonization, gender, race, class, um, political struggles, things like that. And so Kahlo has Leo on the ascendant, and the ruler of her ascendant is the sun. Her sun is in Cancer at 13 degrees, and it is in in an exact opposition with Mars in Capricorn in the sixth house, also at 13 degrees. 
Um, Mars is what we call the malefic contrary to sect, meaning that this is a day chart. And Mars can be a more challenging planet for people who are born during the daytime. Um, that said, Mars is in Capricorn, which is the sign of its exaltation. And it's in the sixth house, which, as we said earlier, is the house where Mars rejoices. So while Mars is potentially the most challenging planet in this chart in terms of describing experiences of difficulty or struggle, um, Mars also has some pretty profound support in this chart in terms of its sign and house placement. Um, it's also closely conjunct the planet Uranus, um, Uranus being the planet that's associated with radical change and revolution and disruptions and upheaval. And as we think through or um, reflect on Frida Kahlo's life, I think we can see that Uranus influence there as well, which is obviously also closely opposing her son. So it's conjunct Mars opposing the sun. Um, and Frida Kahlo contracted polio when she was six years old, um, which left her right leg thinner and less strong than her um, uh, left leg. And so from even from early childhood, we could see the ways that she struggled with illness and permanent differences to her body. Um, so that's part of a signature in her life from very, very early on. Then, when she was 18 years old, she was in a pretty disastrous bus accident in which she was impaled on a railing. Um, she suffered multiple fractures to her spine, her collarbone, her ribs. Um, her pelvis was shattered. Um, she had a broken foot and a dislocated shoulder. Um, and over the course of her lifetime, she had over 30 operations attempting to um, stabilize all of these parts of her body that had been injured. And she talked and wrote about the fact that she lived with lifelong chronic pain from that point onward. Uh, following the accident, she was confined to her bed for three months. Um, and although she had been previously studying to be a physician, while she was um, in bed recovering from this accident, she began to paint. Um, and her mother provided her with a specially made easel that she could work work with from her limited range of motion in bed. Um, her father lent her some of his oil paints, um, and she had a mirror placed above the bed so that she could see herself, that she could see her reflection and paint herself based on that, her reflection. Um, and painting became a way for her to explore um, her life, her identity, um, and what it meant to exist as a woman in this particular period of history in Mexico. At one point, she explained, quote, I paint myself because I am often alone and I am the subject I know best, end quote. And then she later stated that the accident and the isolating recovery period made her desire to begin again, painting things just as she saw them with her own eyes and nothing more. And so we could say that Mars, again, the malefic contrary to sect, conjunct Uranus, exactly opposing the ruler of her ascendant in the sixth house could describe some of these health issues from a young age, but then especially this really severe accident, the broken bones, all of the operations, the severe lifelong disabilities and pain. And at the same time, Mars is both exalted in Capricorn and in its, the house of its joy. When a planet is exalted, it's said to be elevated. It's lifted up. It receives special favor or honors or recognition. And Frida Kahlo went on to become an internationally celebrated painter. The painting that she began 
because she was confined to her bed following this horrific accident. Which again, so the planet being in um, a favorable condition by sign, being in the sign of its exaltation, or even the house where it rejoices, doesn't negate the fact that life was very hard, that she went through some really traumatic disabling experiences. And yet we can see the influence of the exaltation there and perhaps the presence of Mars in the house of its joy amplifying the work that came out of that experience and projecting her to international fame, which we might see because Mars rules the ninth house, international fame. Mars also rules the fourth house, and a lot of her work is reflecting on her homeland and her place of belonging in the place that she was from. So, we can bring in more themes from the chart if we wanted to. The other thing that I wanted to mention about Kahlo reflecting on this chart, maybe with the the Mars-Uranus conjunction in the sixth house, is her political life, um, her revolutionary politics. Um, Frida Kahlo was a lifelong communist. And in fact, um, even though she was born in 1907, she confessed later in life that from an early age, she told people that she was born in 1910, because that was the year that the Mexican Revolution started, and she wanted to be associated with the revolution, that her birth was a revolutionary birth. And so, she just tweaked the the, the birth date just a little bit to be more closely associated with revolutionary politics, which, like, if that's not Uranus opposing the ruler of the Ascendant, I don't know what is. Um, <laughs> She was also a lifelong critic of capitalism and advocated for people who suffered within those kinds of systems. At one point when she was visiting the United States in the early years of the Great Depression, she wrote home saying, quote, I have seen thousands of people in the most terrible misery without anything to eat and with no place to sleep. That is what has impressed me here. It is terrifying to see the rich having parties day and night while thousands and thousands of people are dying of hunger, end quote. And so we have very clear themes here of the impact of class struggles within oppressive systems. And then she also connected that revolutionary politics specifically to her art. Mm -hmm. She wrote once in her um, journals, quote, I feel uneasy about my painting. Above all, I want to transform it into something useful for the communist revolutionary movement, since up to now I have only painted the earnest portrayal of myself, but I'm very far from work that could serve the party. I have to fight with all my strength to contribute to the few positive things my health allows me to uh, contribute to the revolution, the only true reason to live for. And maybe that's, maybe that's enough to say about her revolutionary politics. Um, but so we see in her life, this intersection of um, illness, injury, disability, revolutionary class-based politics, all weaving through her sixth house in a way that is similar to the ways that we see themes of marginalization and oppression, struggle, and the history and afterlife of slavery and mass incarceration weaving through the sixth house in Ava DuVernay's chart. Yeah, it's, it's you know, that sentiment, that sense of like inadequacy, mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. It has that very like Marsy yeah. quality and also Mars in a Saturn sign, but that sense of like, oh, I'm not doing enough. And even thinking, you know, comparing her work, it, a lot of times she would like to Diego's work, like hers was mm-hmm. more personal and his was often more like these are groups of people and showing like just very directly associated with labor and union, things like that. But honestly, like most people, more people remember Frida's work 
And so that sense of like, through injury, she found her work, that inclination, that simultaneously this great source of difficulty and also a source of like tremendous courage and Mm -hmm. uniqueness and endurance. And I think also wanting to point out that inclination, she had to become a physician, right? To like Mm -hmm. work with Mm -hmm. sickness, to work with that. And she ended up, but it was like her injury that sort of, she still found her work related in that field, but thinking of sometimes that, you know, those inclinations towards these hard spaces can also be a way that those dark house placements are playing out for sure. Totally. I, yeah, I had not made that connection about even before the accident, the desire to be a physician reflects this strong six, 12th house axis um, because the 12th house especially has been associated with hospitals specifically for a long time um, because the 12th house, which is another episode forthcoming probably, (laughs) (laughs) it has been associated with places of isolation or exile or places where people are separated off from the rest of society. And so hospitals fit easily in the 12th house and the ruler for ascendant being there, but opposing Mars in the sixth house. So it's like, there's a tie there between those houses and all of those themes coming through so clearly. For sure. I mean, she literally like harbored exiles, you know, like (laughs) she literally like did that. So (laughs) she's working strong on that 12, six axis for sure. Absolutely. Um, And so those were just like a couple of examples of ways that six house placements can show up. It's not that everyone who has planets in the six house are going to create feature length documentaries about the, <laughs> um, the the entanglement of slavery and mass incarceration or have the artistic career of Frida Kahlo, but just to show how each of those themes that we talked through in terms of ancient significations attributed to the sixth house, misfortunes and troubles and illness and disease and accidents and injuries and bondage, oppression, slavery, um, enemies, insurrections, and so on. All of those themes, we can see them in real people's lives, in people who lived in the last century, who are currently living, um, and that as people explore their own charts, their the charts of their clients, that we can bring some of these ancient significations of the sixth house to how we're contemplating what those planets might describe in that person's life, um, and also what their life might be directed toward in terms of their personal um, struggle between well-being and work and labor and the idealized norm of particular bodies rather than other bodies um, and the ways in which we are um, falling away from power in the sixth house. We can look at that in our own lives, but then also how do we contribute to perhaps larger struggles with those systems that we didn't create, that we didn't choose, that we are a part of, that we are actively reproducing in our lives because we are subject to them. How can we look at those six house placements or configurations related to the six house in our charts as indications for areas of possibility of what the work we might do in this life to um, struggle against those existing systems in some way? For sure. I think we're we're heading towards wrapping up, but I want to bring up one a couple more things if that's okay. Yeah. Um, I think it's a timely like thinking about burnout, which has been a really big topic in 2022 when we're recording this. And that tendency, you know, as Demetra says, like in this this house in particular, but also in the averted houses, like tend to struggle in order to sustain the life force. That sense of burnout and that or struggling to sustain the life force, trying to get to it, feeling it rejected from us, that very caught up in work, um, also a very Marsy thing to burn out 
um, or to work to the point of burnout or feel that in a system to which one has to work to the point or past the point of burnout, um, which also makes me think of things like the NAP ministry um, mm-hmm. in ways of like where we're talking about these, these regimens or the, what are these ways of like protesting with our regimens um, or how we take mm-hmm. care of ourselves. Um, and even just to get the word regimen is like a very military derived thing, like how regimented we are and how we take care of ourselves, which also shows up in that sort of sixth house. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just throwing everything into a bowl and then I'll toss it back. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Making and thinking too about animals. Um, mm-hmm. and also, you know, it's also thinking about, you know, we have service animals, the idea of having a service dog. Mm-hmm. I know anytime my sixth house gets activated, it's like a lot of pet stuff. Um, but also just thinking about animal rights and animal welfare, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. you know, coinciding with also, you know, a lot of times people who have sort of like ethical protest against the enslavement of animals, <laughs> um, the industrial enslavement of animals, for instance, um, also affects how they're, the choices they make as far as nutrition or how they take care of themselves, whether choosing vegetarianism or like meat or something mm-hmm. like that. And the, the relationship, again, between those two things that we see kind of rubbing up in the six. I love that. And um, yeah, the topic of burnout, so much to say there in terms of the NAP ministry, um, Trisha Hersey's new book that just came out, I think last month, I read it in a day. Um, it's a, a great, easy read. Um, rest is resistance. Um, it's basically, it's like a manifesto, um, refusing the grind culture of white supremacy and capitalism. Like something she says over and over in the book is I refuse to donate my body to these, to the systems of capitalism and white supremacy. And it's like, that's a mantra that we could bring into the sixth house. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of us, all of us. Um, and then in terms of burnout, it also made me think of this book, um, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle by Emily Nagoski and Amelia Nagoski, um, who are both researchers in different areas um, that who are sisters who wrote a book on burnout together. And it's um, some of the most insightful um, research that I've seen on like, how do we experience burnout, but also how do we address burnout and how do we address burnout in ways that are not about getting back to work like that. So we're not addressing the burnout so that we can then be more productive. We're addressing the burnout so that we can um, get back in line with our own well-being and um, what health might mean for us. Yeah, for sure. Good sixth house resource for folks. Sixth house book list, which you can find in the show notes um, along with all of your links and handles and everything, where do you like Mm. people to get obsessed with you on the internet? And also I used to say stalked, but then I realized that was such a like Mercury and Scorpio thing to say. (laughs) So I was like, not everyone stalks people. Mm -hmm. Uh, So where would you like people to fall in love with you, get obsessed with you on the internet? And also if you have anything coming up that you would like people Mm. to know about, we could direct them there as well. Sure. Um, well, my website is my favorite place for, for people to find me, um, which is michaeljmorris.co. Um, you can sign up for my mailing list on there. Um, the mailing list is at the bottom of every page. It doesn't have a pop-up that's like, join my mailing list. It's just you can find it if you're looking for it. Um, and you can read a lot about my practice and what I do, what I offer on my website. There's a lot of free resources on the resources page. There's recordings that um, of previous talks and workshops that you can purchase um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff on my website. That's where I love people to find me. Um, I'm also on Instagram at co witchcraft offerings. And for now I'm still on Twitter at Morris, Michael J. <laughs> I've been on Twitter since 2009. It feels like, feels like 
Yeah, it feels like I've been through many seasons of Twitter. I'm not like panicking the way other folks are, but I'm also keeping my eye on the pulse of it all. Um, so who knows what's going to happen by the time this episode comes out. Um, in terms of things that are coming up, um, I offer astrology and tarot consultations. I also offer um, tutoring and mentorship sessions for beginner and primarily for beginner and intermediate astrology students, folks who just would like some more one-on-one -on -one attention to support their studies. Although I've also had people do some of the tutoring and mentorship sessions focusing on topics like tarot or ritual or witchcraft, things that have are that are also a long um, rich part of my practice. Um, I launched that offering primarily for astrology students, but then started getting requests of like, <laughs> can we also talk about ritual a little bit? And so, yeah, so it's a kind of as needed email me or, or, uh, contact me through the contact form, um, to let me, if there's something you want to work on and it feels like you could use support. That said, all of those sessions, my consults and my tutoring mentorship sessions are full through the end of the year, um, 2022. Um, but I will begin, I will open my books for all of those for early 2023 sometime in December. So um, if you're listening to this and it's still somewhere before the middle of December, 2022, um, the best thing is to get on my mailing list if you would like to work together and I'll email everyone um, when the books are open. And then also in December, I am facilitating an event in Columbus, an in-person event in Columbus called um, Columbus, Ohio, called Queer Magic. Um, and Queer Magic is an invitation for queer folks to gather together and create a sanctuary of living otherwise together, um, co-creating practices and rituals of care with and for one another moving between the worlds, by which I mean the world as it has been and all the possible worlds that are yet to come, um, in order to generate collective resources that are often made unavailable or inaccessible within capitalist heteropatriarchy. So if you are in Columbus and you would like to be part of a emergent ritual practice for queer folks, um, you can find out more about that on the events page on my website. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and just like opening up this sixth house book for us and with us and just sharing all of your, your knowledge, your research, and um, honestly, just like heartfelt and honest perspectives with us. I know they're super valuable and I know that they'll mean a lot to the people listening. So thank you. Thank you for having me. It's always, always a delight to be here and to be in conversation with you. And I hope that the resources that we generated today are useful for people. Thank you for participating in this conversation with us. If you enjoyed the episode, please take a few moments to subscribe to the show, leave us a review and share the episode. These tiny tasks help our independent podcast so much. Be sure to also check out the links below to learn more about any free resources, guests, or things we talked about today. Our intro and outro music was created by artists Aaron Palovic and Jared Kelly. Our podcast logo was created by Elaine Stevenson, and this show is produced by Softer Sound Studio. Thank you for being here. Be well. Peace.